Father, Jesus tells us that where two or three are gathered, you are in our midst, and we believe that there is power in that. We worship a Trinitarian God. We worship Father, Son, and Spirit, and we have a rich, rich treasure in your word, a treasure that our eyes often do not see. We all struggle when our hearts are dull and our, uh, our minds are tired and we are easily distracted. But this is, as the disciples said, this is the words of life that we're looking at this morning. Jesus said, without him, we can do nothing. Anybody can stand up here. Anybody can read words or say words. We believe that your spirit is active and has to be involved if if lives are going to change. If we're going to see and if we're going to change, you have to be a part of what we're doing here this morning. And we pray for that. Pray that you would open our ears to truth, open our eyes and understanding, and I pray that you would be glorified as you reveal yourself to us this morning. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. We're okay on that microphone there? Okay. In 1956, at the age of 58, for the first time, C.S. Lewis, a lifelong bachelor, surprised everyone when he married an American, Joy Davidman. She was to him a joy in every way. Four years later, she died of cancer. In his grief, he journaled these words. Meanwhile, where is God? This is one of the most disquieting symptoms. When you are happy, so happy that you have no sense of needing him, so happy that you are tempted to feel his claims upon you as an interruption, if you remember yourself and turn to him with gratitude and praise, you will be, or so it feels, welcomed with open arms. But go to him when your need is desperate. When all other help is vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face, and the sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside, and after that, silence. You may as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. There are no lights in the windows. It might be an empty house. Was it ever inhabited? It seemed so once, and that seeming was as strong as this. What can this mean? Why is he so present a commander in our time of prosperity, and so very absent a help in time of trouble. And he goes on to say, Not that I am, I think, in much danger of ceasing to believe in God. The real danger is of coming to believe such dreadful things about him. The conclusion I dread is not, so there's no God after all, but, so this is what God's really like. Deceive yourself no longer. This is a godly man, a theologian, not to be the greatest theologian, but certainly a man who knew God well. And he had written a book 20 years before called The Problem of Pain. But in his book here, A Grief Observed, he's living through the experience and not just writing about it. We all know the words of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures, he restores my soul. But there are times when those words feel hollow and empty and even untrue, perhaps leading us to a feeling of cynicism. Maybe these words from David, also from David, Psalm 22, just the psalm before, feel more natural to you. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Or these from Jeremiah in the book of Lamentations, which sounds surprisingly like those words from C.S. Lewis. I am the man who has seen affliction by the rod of the Lord's wrath. He has driven me away and made me walk in darkness rather than light. Indeed, he has turned his hand against me again and again all day long. 
He has made my skin and my flesh grow old and has broken my bones. He has besieged me and surrounded me with bitterness and hardship. He has made me dwell in darkness like those long dead. He has walled me in so I cannot escape. He has weighed me down with chains. Even when I call out or cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has barred my way with blocks of stone. He has made my paths crooked. Do you ever feel like that? Is it all about Psalm 23? Is the Lord always your shepherd? Yes, he is. But do you always feel that? Or do you feel like David or like Jeremiah or perhaps like these, the sons of Korah? Now, we sing a song that goes to these words, but the song, I think, somewhat distorts the... It's not that it's not true, but it doesn't capture the whole perspective of Psalm 42. In Psalm 42, the sons of Korah are desperate. They say, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Do you ever feel like that? Does it ever feel sometimes like God is against you? That he is absent and silent and refuses to speak? Do you sometimes or often have trouble seeing God as a loving father? See, our challenge is our tendency is to see or define the reality of God's character and love through the lens of our circumstances. We look at our life, we look at where we're going through, and we know there's, there's going to be a little grief, there's going to be a little trial, I expect that in life. But sometimes it just piles on and it piles on and it piles on, and you hear in your mind the sound that C.S. Lewis pointed to, you cry out to God and you hear bolts being turned and double bolts, and the lights go out in the house of God, and you wonder, where is he? So how do we overcome the temptation to see and define God by our circumstances? In part, we do this by learning to see God the Father through the Son, by trying to see him more objectively and not directly through the filter of our experience and our, our, our circumstances. Now, we have one great advantage over the Old Testament saints. We have the New Testament. And in that, as one man has described, we see God from the inside. It's as if the people in the Old Testament saw God from the outside, They didn't understand the beauty of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. That beautiful family relationship that has existed throughout all eternity. The love, the harmony, the peace, the joy that exists between three members of the Godhead. But sometimes we can revert to seeing God as if he were still explained in the Old Testament without having access and understanding a functional usefulness of the Trinity. There is a vital delineation in the New Testament versus the Old. You see, when, when, the, when the New Testament speaks of God, it uses the word God. It's not usually or primarily talking about God the Trinity. It's talking about God the Father. It doesn't use his name Father, but the context over and over and over again shows that it's talking about the Father. And now, nobody explained this to me for years. I don't, maybe I missed that day at church, missed that day in Sunday school. But when this came to me just a year or so ago as I was reading John Owen's book, Communion with God, it transformed the way I see the New Testament. Now, I wish I could say it completely transformed my life. It's, it's growing. It's a, it's a growing process. But I would say if you could see this, that's one key. And I, this is not the, the meat of the message this morning, but we have to lay this understanding of who the Trinity is and why it matters. If you read Romans 8, 1, and I just want to read some snippets, and this gets you going. Next time you have a chance, pull your Bible out, and and you'll find it all through the New Testament. If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, we read God as if we're still in the Old Testament, God, the Trinity. But it says, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son. Now, you see, that's, that's talking about the Father. 
We read in 1 John 4, 8, God is love. How do we know that? Because he manifested to us and that he sent his only son into the world. We say this all the time. We say this every time for months on end at the end of our services. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. God is standing in there for Father. And we can capture this. We realize that the Bible has much more to say about the Father than we ever expected or we ever imagined. It says in Hebrews 1, God has spoken to us by his Son. And on and on and on through the New Testament. So understanding that the Trinity matters, it's been given to us as a rich privilege and relationship with God so we can understand who he is and we can draw into that. And help us to clarify in our mind we're having trouble seeing him as a good father. We have to first understand the concept of Father, Son, and Spirit. Now, how does this helpful? Well, it clarifies our thinking because we know the New Testament reveals that the Father is the one who makes the plans. According to Ephesians 1.11, he works all things according to the counsel of his own will. In the context, it makes it clear that's the Father that's being talked about. The Father is the one who makes the plan, has made the plan for this world. The Father is the one who has chosen us in Christ. The Father is the one who sent the Son. The Father is the initiator. The Father is the one whose love defines this world. Now, I think the Son's love is a bit easier to see. We look at the Son, we know Jesus came in the flesh. He came and he died on the cross. We can, we can, we can connect with that. That's what, that's what it's supposed to be that way. That's why he sent Jesus in the flesh, so we could connect with that. We can understand God in flesh in one sense because we're humans, he's human. Jesus is human. And we can see his sacrifice on the cross. But in the Holy Spirit, we can understand that. We can understand the comfort of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes as a dove. We can relate to that. But if we don't have clarity in our thinking, if we're not understanding how God is revealed as Trinity, then we have this nebulous idea of, I feel like God is against me. Well, who's God? What, what, which part of the God has against you? And this is the clarity that came to me, was that it's the Father that we're having trouble with. If we're having a problem seeing God or feeling like God is good, it's usually not the Son or the Spirit. It's the Father that we're having problems with, we're having issues with. What I want to do this morning is learn how to see the Father through the Son. John tells us, John 1.18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has made him known. I want to give this illustration. Suppose you're down here, just you go left out of the drive, when you're down there by the river and you're walking along the river one day. And along the river, as you're walking along one day, you meet a stranger. And this stranger's personality and his way of speaking just capture you. You're instantly caught by the way this, this stranger talks to you. And you begin to listen to the stranger. And you want to know what he has to say. And you become friends. And the friend tells you all about his family. And most importantly, he tells you about his father. He tells you about the kind of person that his father is. And as time goes on, you come to understand that your friend's father is gracious and he's loving. And his love is of such a nature, he'd actually sent your friend to you so that you could come and find out about his father. And you heard about the relationship this, this friend had with his father. Mutual love, kindness, affection, never any quarrels. You find out his father is a generous giver. And he gave all that he had to his son. And as you hear more and more about this, your friend's father, you're, like, you're drawn to want to know more about the friend's father. It sounds wonderful. Even if you weren't part of your friend's family, it wouldn't be long before you wish that you were part of your friend's family. No matter what kind of home life you had, that sounds like a good place to live, to go live in your friend's father's house. And you might even say, oh, boy, I wish I could go meet my friend's dad. He sounds like such a wonderful person. You might even catch yourself wishing somehow you could go live with him. But then eventually the day came when your friend said, I need to go back home to my father's house. 
it's time for me to go back home. And hearing this, your heart was very sad and you wanted to go with him. You might've even said something like, I don't know where you're going and how could I know the way? Or could you just show me your father and it'll be enough. And your friend might say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Or he might even say, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And I believe that little illustration is what the Gospel of John is all about. When I was young and throughout my life, I've been taught, and I believe it's true to a degree, that Acts, uh, John twenty thirty one, John says at the end of his Gospel, these have been written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in his name. And so the gospel of John is truly given so that we can understand salvation. But I believe even beyond that, even at a bigger stepping back a step further, the gospel of John is given so that we can know the Father. The gospel of John is given so that we can know the Father. So by looking at the Son, who we can connect with a bit better, we can understand, we can see the Father through the Son, and that will help us as we struggle with life circumstances. So why should we listen to the Son? Why look to Him? Why, why look to the Son to learn about the Father? Because He knows the Father better than anyone else. You know, you, you can hear a report of some celebrity or the king or the president or whatever, and you can hear reports and you can see things from a distance. But if you, short of actually going and meeting this person face-to-face and living with them for a while, the best thing you can do is to get to know someone is to meet their best friend or a family member, someone who really, really knows them well, and say, what are they really like? What are they really like? Because sometimes I'm not seeing them properly, or maybe they, the, the news cut. Maybe they're cutting, and maybe they're doing stuff with the news, and I can't really tell what they're like. If they're cutting sound bites or editing or you know, artificial intelligence, how do I know if what I'm really seeing is true? Well, by talking to the person who actually knows them, you can better come to understand the person, and you won't have these filters in place, whether it's your circumstances or whether it's the media. But Jesus can tell us about the Father because he knows him better than anyone else. In fact, he's known him longer than anyone else. He's known him forever. Now, I'm not sure how this will work this morning because we'll be flipping around or swiping around in John a lot. So I'm not sure that you want to turn to every single passage because what I want to try to do is just really jump in, swim around a bit, see what's in there, and come back out so that when you have a chance to read John next time for yourself, you might have a different lens with which to read the book of John. But we know that Jesus knows the Father better than anyone else because he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he was in the beginning with God, John 1, 1 and 2. So the Son knows the Father. He's known the Father for longer than anyone else. He's also known the Father. He's also closer to the Father than anyone else. It says in John 1, verse 18, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father he has made him known. And Jesus will go on to say in John ten fifteen, I know the Father as the Father knows me. So if you want to see the Father more clearly, listen to what the Son says about the Father. Don't look at the Father through your circumstances. Jesus is also the only one who's ever, tr- ever truly seen the Father. He says in John 6, in verse 46, Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Jesus is an eyewitness report of the Father. No one else in all of history has ever seen the Father in the way that Jesus has seen him. No one has seen him at all. So he has been with the Father longer. He knows the Father better. He's closer to the Father. He's the only one who's ever truly seen the Father, and he's one with the Father. You want to get close to somebody, be one with them. What does that even mean? There's, there's more than a sermon's worth in that. But Jesus says in John 10, in verse 30 to 36, he says, 
In verse 30, I and my Father are one. And this goes on and on and on. So what we see, if you, if you are one with somebody, what you see about the one person you do know tells you everything you need to know about the one person that you don't know. What we see, hear, or learn about the Son from the Father is true. He says in Hebrews 1, verse 3, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. How does he describe the Son in in verse 2? It says he is the brightness of his glory. He's the express image of his person. And I don't know if this works out theologically in every situation, but the, the picture I like to think of is that when you see the sun, it's not the sun that you're seeing, it's the rays of light that are coming to you from the sun that you're seeing. And those, those rays of light that are actually communicating the truth about the sun to you, you're seeing the sunlight, you're seeing the beams, and that's telling you all you need to know about the sun. S-U-N, not S-O-N. But that's the same of the truth of the Son of God. When you see the Son of God clearly, you're seeing everything you need to know about the Father. You're seeing a true and accurate and perfect representation of the Father. And so when life gets hard and you think, God, what in the world is going on? Why are you doing this? Why don't you? I need help. I need money in my bank account. I need healing. I need hope. I need something to hang on to. Why don't say God must be this because this is what my experience is. The father must be this because this is how I'm experiencing life. Look at the son. And when the son says the, well, we'll get into that in a second. When the son says the father is good, believe the son for what he says. Don't look at your circumstances and say, God might not be good because this is what I'm going through. It says in Colossians 1, 15 through 19, in the son dwells all the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form. All the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form dwells in the body of the son. And so to finish setting this, this stage, this background, I would say this. Because the Son has known the Father longer than anyone else, because he is closer to the Father than anyone else, because he is the only one who has ever truly seen the Father, because he is one with the Father, that we can and we must trust what he says about his Father. Listen to what the Son says about the Father and believe. So look to Jesus to see the heart, the love, and the compassion of the Father. How do we see the Father and the Son? I think Jesus makes it clear to us in the, in the book of John in three in three ways. I'm not one to typically alliterate, but it just fell out on my, onto my notes. Jesus does the Father's will, he does the Father's works, and he says the Father's words. And that's right from the book of John. So let's look briefly at point one. Jesus does the Father's will. He will say this multiple times in the gospel. He will say multiple times, I have come not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. So when you see Jesus doing something, it's because the Father wants it done. When you see, and we'll get to this in a little bit more detail, when you see the Son healing someone, it's because the Father wants him healed. When you see the Son raising the dead, it's because the Father wants that person raised. And over and over again, Jesus does the Father's will. He says to the Samaritans when he's there in Samaria, he says, the hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit. And in those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And I think I missed it. It's down to verse 34. Jesus said to them, because the disciples came back and he said, did someone bring him bread? He's not hungry. He said, he's got his food. He said, I've got food that you, to eat that you don't eat, know what to eat of. 
And he said, did someone bring him food? And he said, no, my food, my meat is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. So whatever Jesus is doing, whatever you see about lovely about Jesus in the Gospels, whether we're, not, we're in John today, but it's true of all the Gospels or anywhere else you get a hint or a smell or a flavor of Christ, it's true of the Father. He's come to do the Father's work and to accomplish his will. He says in John 5.30, I don't seek my own will. I seek the will of the one who sent me. Now we have to understand and grasp here just momentarily as we get into the Trinity. Obviously, this is, someone once said, it's a deep end of the theological pool. Getting into talk about the Trinity, it can get complex, but there are certain things about the Trinity that are clear from Scripture, and we need to understand that in their being, Father, Son, and Spirit, Father, Son, and Spirit are complete equals, as we would say in a marriage relationship or in any relationship, humanly speaking. All humans are being in the image of God, created equal. Everyone has the same standing before God. We're equal. However, even within the Trinity, there are different functions. And what we would say, the different functions of the Trinity, in the functions of the Trinity, the Son is subordinate to the Father. Not in his being, not in his, not, his, not in his Godhead, but in the way he functions, he does what the Father tells him to do, and he delights to do that. And so when he says, I don't come to do my own will, it's because he's submitting himself to the Father's will. He's coming to do the Father's will. He says it multiple times. And so when he gives his life, in John 1.13, Jesus said, uh, verse 12 of John 1, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, to those who believe in his name. Salvation comes to those who believe in his name. They were not born of the w- blood or of the will of the flesh, but they were born of the will of, not of the will of man, but of the will of God. It was the will of God that some would come to salvation, and that's why they're saved. And so what Jesus says, he says, I'm going to give life to those whom God has willed to be saved. The Father has willed to be saved. He's going to give life because he's doing the Father's will. The Father desires some to be saved. Jesus says in John 6, the end of John 6, the Father has given some to me and I die for them and I save them and I bring them to salvation and they can, no one can ever take them out of my hand. He came to earth. Why did the Son come to earth? Because the, it was the Father's will to send the Son to the earth. The Father wants to be known. We saw that in Hebrews 1. God spoke through prophets, but now he speaks through his Son. Why does God speak? Because he wants to be known. He wants his creatures to, who are made in his image, he wants them to be known. That's why he sends the Son. It's his will for himself to be known by his creatures, and that's why the Son is sent. And Jesus comes to earth because of that. What, what are some things that are the Father's will? Jesus, it says in John 1 that all things were made through the Son. All things were made through the second person of the Trinity. Why were they made? Because the Father, the first person of the Trinity, one of them made we read in our responsive reading this morning about the creation of the garden and the beautiful, and it was all very good. Why does that exist? Because God the Father is a good God who makes good things. And he said, here's all these trees you can eat from. I'm, there's one you can't eat from, and I've got, a, I've got a good reason for that. But here's all the things you can eat from. Feast, enjoy, fellowship with me. Because that's the kind of a God, that's the kind of a Father that I am. It was the Father's will to make a good and beautiful world. It was the Father's will to make himself known by sending the Son. It was the Father's will to judge sin. It was the Father's will to redeem. It was the Father's will to give eternal life. All of these things happen because it is the Father's will, and the Son does the Father's will. But Jesus doesn't just do the Father's will. He speaks the Father's words. He will say this many times. He said, I don't speak my own words. I speak the words of the one who has sent me. Now, I'm not a fan of red-letter Bibles. I know that's, that's a thing that a lot of Bibles have, the words of Christ in red. But if Jesus is saying, I'm speaking the words, I'm not speaking my own words, I'm speaking the words of the one who sent me, 
Whose words are really in red? It's the Father. He's giving words to the Son to speak because he wants his people to know him and to know him clearly and accurately. He speaks what he has heard from the Father. He says this in John 8 to people in the temple. He said, I'm speaking the words that I've heard from my Father. He says this in John 12, the last public meeting that he has before he's taken and meets with his disciples and goes to the crucifixion. The last time he speaks publicly, he speaks and he says, I'm not speaking my own words. I'm speaking the words of my Father. In John 12, verse 49. He also says, we can turn here, when he's speaking to his disciples in John 14, he says to his disciples, when, and I, I believe this is why they finally get, this is why all this discussion happens about the Father in John 14. Because they finally understand, this is, he's come to show us the Father. And now he's going back to the Father, and we want to go see him too. But he says in John 14, and verse 10, to his disciples, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority. The Father who dwells in me, he does the works. And he repeats that again down in verse 24. He who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear me is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Again and again and again, when you're reading the Gospels, you may hear the mouth of Jesus speaking, but it's the, it's the words of God that are coming out. It's the words of the Father that are coming out. And we struggle so much to see this because our circumstances so often overrule how we view God the Father. But listen to what the Son says. He knows him better than anybody else. And he's the only one. Jesus is not going to give a false report about who his Father is and what his Father's like. So as Pastor Rodney's reminded us, if you see something in Scripture or if you experience something in life that you don't like or that doesn't make sense or that it feels wrong, recognize that the problem is with your eyesight. You don't have the right pair of glasses on yet. It's not with the truth. It's not with God. It's with your perception of who God is and how he is like. Jesus will say this. But he doesn't just speak the Father's words. He does the Father's works. And that there's a lot of lessons for us here. Jesus does seven miracles in the book of John. And we see Jesus doing many good things. What's the first miracle that Jesus does? If you, know your, if you know your book of John, the first miracle Jesus does is turn water into wine. Now, there's many reasons that that miracle is done. But throughout the Old Testament, the Bible makes it clear that wine is associated with joy and with pleasure. The right kind of joy and pleasure. You'll see throughout the Old Testament, God gives grapes, he gives wine. It says, God gives wine to cheer the heart of man. And so what is Jesus symbolizing when he turns water into wine? He says, I'm bringing joy. He brought joy to that wedding. He said, you saved the best stuff for last. He brought joy to the wedding. Why does the son bring joy? Why does the son bring joy into the world? Because the father is joy. The father wants joy to come into the world. So he says, I'm going to bring, what is, we'll bring a baby home. I owe my pride and joy. This is my joy. This is what the father says. I'm going to send my joy into the world so you may have my experience, my joy. So he brings joy to the world. He brings joy to this wedding. Because the Father delights to bring joy. But we also see Jesus healing three people in the book of John. He heals an official son. The, son come, the Father comes to him and says, my son's dying, can you do something? And Jesus sends and he speaks the word and the son is healed and he doesn't die. And then in John 5, there's a lame man laying by the pool of Bethesda. For 38 years he's laid there wanting to be healed and he can't be healed and he wants to be healed, he wants to walk. But he's not. But then Jesus comes and he can 
Jesus said, pick up your bed and walk. Why is, why is he healed? If the son's doing the father's works and he's doing the father's will, this man is healed because the father wants him healed. And we need to remember that. It's not just Jesus that we look to. It's like, yeah, Jesus I can relate to. Look how he heals people. And God's this, the father, he's up in heaven somewhere. I can't really relate to him real well. But Jesus says, look at my works. They speak about me and they speak about my father. So when you're reading your gospels and you're reading about Jesus, think about the father. He heals a blind man in John 9. The man's been blind since birth. And the people say, why has he been born blind? Is it something he did? Something his parents did? He must have, something must have done something for this man to be born blind. And Jesus says, no, but it says the glory of God might be revealed. And he heals the man. He gives him his sight right there on the spot. Why is that man healed? Because the father wanted him to be healed. The father is a healing God. That is, what is it? Why did Jesus, why did the father send the son into the earth, to the world, to save people so that eventually their bodies could be resurrected so that eventually he could remake this world into a new heavens and a new earth so we could eventually live in the kind of world that he always intended for us to live in. That's the kind of God, that's the kind of father who's in charge. Don't look at the circumstances. Don't look right now at what you see. Look at the purposes of the father as shown in the son. Then Jesus heals the 5,000. Why does he heal the 5,000? Because they're hungry. Why does the son heal the 5,000? Because they're hungry? Because the father likes to feed hungry people. The father cares about hungry people and he brings them food. Now, there's a little point of confusion, and I think this is something we really wrestle with, and this might be the heart of the whole struggle that we have with seeing the Father as good. But if the Son's carrying out, and he's the exact image of the Father, we would expect to see some of this in the Son, but we don't catch it at first. So we see that he heals a man born blind, but the man's been blind for a long, long time. If God wants to heal, why is the man born blind? We see a man for 38 years Wanting to be healed, can't walk. Wants to be healed, it can't walk. Well, we just learned the Father's a healing God. So why does he let the man lay there for 38 years, crippled, so anxious to be able to want to get up and walk? We see that sometimes Jesus delays because the Father has a perfect plan. And I think that very often that is what is our problem. That is what our hardship is. Is we're not recognizing that the Father has a plan that's better than we realize it is. Because we're looking in the moment and we're not understanding and we're seeing God's delay as a lack of concern. We're seeing it as a lack of care, a lack of compassion. We say, God, you know what? We sound like Martha. What did Martha say when God delayed? When Jesus, Jesus delayed, didn't he? Jesus delayed. Lazarus is sick and they call for Jesus and they say, get here, Jesus. And then he intentionally waits two more days and doesn't go to give Lazarus time to die. Jesus, the compassionate one who raises the dead, who heals the sick, he lets a man die. And everybody's thinking, what is going on? You must not care. And that's what Martha says. She said, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And he says, um, verse 21 of John 11, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. But even now I know that you, if you ask it of God, he'll give you. He said, your brother will rise again. She said, well, I know he's going to rise in the resurrection. I get that. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. And then he goes on to heal and raise Lazarus from the dead and does this amazing, wonderful miracle. And so I think sometimes we can experience God's delay as a lack of care and concern. But here, even Jesus himself, doing the work of the Father, he delays his miracle so he can do a greater miracle. 
Spurgeon says, this was changed and made into a song a number of years ago. Spurgeon says, the man of earth blesses God, the natural man, the non-converted man, blesses God as long as God's giving him plenty. But the Christian blesses God when he smites him. The Christian believes God to be too wise to err and too good to be unkind. He trusts him where he cannot trace him. He looks up to him in the darkest hour and believes all that is well. The Christian will do that if he believes that that's the heart and nature of the Father, but he will not do that if he lets his circumstances dictate how he sees the Father. And the Father says, look at me. I've sent my son so that you can know what I'm like, so that you can believe that I am who I say I am, and I am not who your circumstances tell you that I am. This gets into a little bit of discussion. I would also suggest, I've heard this said before, that God's more concerned about our happiness than our holiness. So suck it up. Life's rough. You're going to grow through it. God really cares about your holiness. He doesn't care about your happiness. And I believe that is so untrue. God wants us to have joy. That's why he sent the son into the world so we would have joy. But I think our struggle is that we don't always recognize that holiness leads to happiness. We make it. Holiness sounds like monks in a monastery. It sounds like self-denial. It sounds like asceticism. It sounds like fasting and praying and just all this stuff that would make us feel so miserable. That's not holiness. It says in Hebrews 1 that God anointed the son with the oil of gladness more than his, more than his companions because he loved righteousness and hated wickedness. The, son, the father gave the son more joy, more gladness. Why? Because he loved holiness. And if we could grasp and understand that holiness is a means to happiness and not in conflict with happiness, it would help us when we're going through these trials. Because we know from the book of Hebrews, it tells us, no discipline for the time seems joyful, but afterwards it leads, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. He disciplines us for our good. Not because he's just a dictator up there, not because he doesn't care, but because we, like little children, don't understand what's going to give us the best joy. A parent knows that cake is good. A parent knows that sugar is good. It's a delight, but a parent also knows that too much of those things is not good. So to say you can't have sugar, you can't have cake, you can't have any desserts because it's not good for you, that would be not the way that God would have us live. Because those things are good. God gives us sweet things. He gives us delightful things. He gives us fat things. Things that are tasty and dripping with grease. But again, not too much, obviously. Take care of your body. But those things, Nehemiah says, when they're rejoicing after a time of confession and repentance, he says, today is a holy day to the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Go out and eat the fat and drink the sweet wine. How do you celebrate as a Christian? You give the the good blessings that the Father has provided. So that is God's heart and his nature. And if we think that God is just out there for our holiness because that's good for you. So take your medicine, take your cod liver oil, take your miserable life because it's going to be good for you in the end. Patience, patience and trust that the father that's in charge is good and he does care about our happiness and he does care about our joy. I might consider this, I don't know if there's such a thing as taste bud surgery. The idea came to me today. Is there, does anybody know, is there anything called taste bud surgery? Why would you have taste bud surgery? Well, what if you knew there's something really, really good for you, and then if your taste buds work properly, you'd really want to eat a lot of it, but your taste buds really don't like it. And so you could have the surgery that was done so that after the surgery was done, you'd like all the healthy stuff that you don't like, and you wouldn't have an appetite for all the stuff that's, not, that, that's going to harm you by being a, maybe being addicted to it or something like that. And so maybe we can think about God's discipline when God allows that delay 
When he allows us to say, God, where are you? Why does it sound like the doors are being shut and the bars are being shut and the lights are being turned off? Why is this? Think of God doing taste bud surgery. Think of him saying, I'm giving you new appetites because when you have the right appetite, you're going to want the thing that's best for you. Holiness sounds boring, sounds hard, sounds restrictive, but righteousness and holiness are very closely related, if not quite exactly parallel, almost almost the same. There's a, a strong connection between the two. Righteousness is right living. And where are you happier than when you're living right? When you are made what you are designed to do. Think of like, we're a, if you take a boat and you park it out on the road and you sit in your boat, what good is the boat going to do you? But you put it in the water and it, it's free to run. Or you put a, a train on the train tracks as opposed to sitting on the road. It does no good on the road. It can't go anywhere. You put it on the tracks, it's a bit restrictive, but that's what it was made to, to do. I think of it, that my, one of my favorite pictures is from the Chariots of Fire movie when, when Eric Liddell is, is saying that God made me for China, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. So God made us for specific things. And when we're doing those specific things he made us for, we're happy because that's what he made us to do. God, you ever, you know, some people think, oh, you know, you're, 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 you're abusing that horse by putting a load on its back. I've seen horses look happy when they're doing something like that. It's like they're made to do it. And God has given purposes and and specific things for us to do. So that's a bit, of a, a, a bit of a sidetrack, but it's to get us back to the idea that, yes, God ultimately wants healing. He wants us happy. He wants us well. But as we see in the life of Jesus, sometimes there's a delay. Sometimes it's a delay of 38 years. Sometimes it's a delay of a life, human lifespan. But in the end, God is a healing God who heals. He's a God who gives life and resurrects from the dead. Because he's a God, he can't help but give life. That's what he wants to do. That's the kind of father that he is. So taking it home, what do we do with this? How do we, how do we, how do we apply this? Now, I'm, not dis- I'm not here to say that once we get the idea that we learn to look through the son to see the father, that all of a sudden we're going to snap our fingers and it's going to be easy. Christian life is a, is a long slog. But if we at least have the right tools in the toolbox, we'll know what tool to pull out. The next time that God feels distant or the next time we're saying, God, I feel like you're against me. Now we'll say, wait a minute. What does he say? He said he sent the son because he wants us to know him and see him clearly. So God, I'm going to take up my gospels. I'm going to take up Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And I'm going to see what it is about Jesus that I love. And when I see what it is about Jesus that I love, then I know that's true about you as well. Because he came to reveal you. He came to, to make you known. Jesus said to see me is to see the one who sent me. And if you had known me, you would have known my Father. And I am the way, the truth, and the life. If we want to see the Father clearly, we must see the Son clearly and realize that we are seeing the Father in Him. I've been reading a book recently by Andrew Murray called Abide in Christ. And one phrase, one sentence that really, really struck me in there. We we know we love our Bibles. We know we love the Word of God. But this quote really hit me hard in a positive way. Andrew Murray says, Study much to know the written Word but study more to know the living word. Study much to know your Bible well. This is the only way you can get to know the living word, but this isn't the end. This is the means to the end. This is the means to the end to know the living word comes through the written word. You don't go in your room and turn off your mind and turn off the lights and make noises, quiet noises and hum and meditate. And like, what does Jesus seem like to me? This is how you know an accurate picture of the son. To know the father accurately, you've got to know the son accurately. And to do that, you need to know his word. Study much to know the written word. Study more to know the living word. 
So when the circumstances tell us that God is against you, look to the sun. Some of you know Nathan and, and Isaac Green that come here. Their, uh, their great-grandfather was a pastor up in, in Minnesota back in the early 1900s. He was a blind pastor, and um, the church wouldn't ordain him back in the early 1900s. They said a blind man can't be a pastor. He can't do the offices of a pastor, so we're not going to ordain him. Well, he showed otherwise. He went to all the places where no, he went out to the rural areas where, where nobody could, nobody, no actual pastors wanted to go because they were too small or too remote or whatever. And uh, he served faithfully. His wife drove him everywhere. And then eventually his daughter and his kids drove him everywhere. And he served faithfully. And in the, end, in the end, the Lutheran church said, well, I guess we have to ordain him anyway because he is obviously functioning as a pastor. But I met uh, Nathan and Isaac's grandmothers in her early 90s, lives out in Minnesota. I had a, recently had a chance to visit because her, her father wrote a biography of himself um, and tells many funny and amusing stories. But when I asked uh, uh, Nathan's grandmother, Grace, if she could sign the book for me since her dad had written it, and, and she wrote in there, she said, always keep the sun in your eyes, S-O-N. And I thought, what a, what a really, really neat statement, especially coming. I said, I asked Nathan's dad, Marcus, I said, was that, a, was that a saying your grandfather used to say a lot? He said, yep. For, for a blind man to say, always keep the sun in your eyes. Obviously, that works in English. That wouldn't work in another language, but it works in English. Always keep the S-O-N. Always keep the sun in your eyes, and you will see the Father, because he and the Father are one. He's the exact outshining of his image. In him, the fullness of the Godhead dwells in bodily form. So when we truly grasp who the Father is, we will want to be with him. When we truly grasp who the Father is, we will be better able to love and trust his love, no matter our trials or how silent he seems. So let's just close this one last verse from John, one we know quite well. But we might read it differently now, having considered what we learn about the Father from the Son. John says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Let's pray.